everybody, welcome to episode 285 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. And we have Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? All righty. So, we're digging some fact check. We were talking last week about Breaker, uh, the new podcasting, social social networking podcasting app, which shows some promise. There's been a few hiccups this week for me trying to use it. Um, but uh, Helen Heidi Pillipas commented uh, on our Devs on the Street episode that we did back in June. June was just the second, or the, we published two episodes during the WWDC uh, time period, first week of June. And uh, she commented on that. And I got an email, you know, since we're the proprietors, and, and I replied to her and started a quick back and forth conversation about the episode. Um, she had recognized one of the developers on, on the show. And uh, that's how it started. And then that's w- about the time that I went in and, and registered because I guess their website was already up by then. Even though, as we discussed last week, the Breaker app itself uh, basically premiered um, a few at the beginning of the month, um, just shortly, a short, short while ago. So that's how we found out about Breaker. And that's why I don't remember, didn't remember um, signing up until I went and checked my email to see one, in fact, you know, because they sent me a welcome email and verify your email address and all that kind of stuff. So moving on. So uh, what, was, what was the actual fact check then uh was fact checking on wh- like why i couldn't remember you know when i first heard of breaker did uh, i run into a developer at the at wwdc or what the story was i, I to, to be honest i don't know if i met her or anybody from the team in w- at wwdc but but there was an interchange talking about that that particular episode gotcha. uh, between her and myself and then 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 i figured well let's just log in because they seem to be you know if they're gonna somehow support our podcast we'll we'll follow along play along and that's how that happened <laughs> do we have any ask mtj see how many we do and as one that you marked oh yes i posted um yeah we were talking about uh crypto kit uh last week and what we were talking about you were introducing um what was it called the uh, swift crypto swift crypto right and uh and i had sort of focused in on crypto kit and uh we were sort of i think we were postulating what the differences were and so george uh tuparev on twitter has basically replied to us saying that crypto kit uses sorry crypto kit can use the t2 chip whereas uh swift, swift crypto cannot so this is kind of a major major thing uh, the major defense announced by a guy at Dot Swift conference last week. He said or a week ago, two weeks ago, I guess. But um, that is interesting because you know, obviously, like not all the devices have T2 chips in them. Some of them have the, the original T1s, and some don't have T chips at all, right? So uh, that would explain why Swift Crypto would be a tool that could be used beyond what you were saying last week about the um, using it on uh, other platforms like Linux and uh, you know on uh, Swift on the what do we call it Swift on the web. What do we call it? Server side Swift, right? So uh, that's why there's a Swift Crypto, and that's why it's significant. That's inter- interesting, right? Well, it, it doesn't imply that crypto kit can't run on phones that don't use, that don't have the T2 chip. No, that's, the, that's what the Apple dude was saying at the conference that, that in fact, you know, oh wait. Crypto kit can use the T2 chip. It doesn't right. have to use the T2 chip. Okay, but yeah. But so Swift, Swift, crypto, crypto for sure crypto cannot, cannot, cannot use. Right. Cannot use T2, yeah. yeah right, yeah. right. So crypto well, kit which, can, can do things that Swift crypto cannot, essentially. Yeah, and actually, the, I, think the, I think the T2 chip's also in the, the um, Touch Bar Mac, right? Because that was one of the 
the yeah. new innovations, right? Yeah. So yeah. That's an important because then, then you get the secure enclave and all that kind of stuff we've enjoyed since we've had Touch ID on our device, right? So, right, right. Which is another level of security, all, all told. Right? All right. So, uh, um, in a bit of a follow up here, uh, well, this is follow up, follow up on tracking and security and things like that. Um, just an interesting post that came out last week on the 10th of February um, that uh, from The Guardian, actually, that um, in the UK paper, but the UK website, I guess, they were talking about how uh, Amazon has been tracking. Uh, if you use Kindle, the Kindle app on Mac or on a Kindle device or your phone, um, Amazon keeps track of what you're reading and how often you're reading and that kind of stuff. Because uh, there was a uh, under the Ca- California privacy law, uh, the author, Carrie Car- Paul, um, asked for his information to be sent to him. So they sent him a couple of Excel files worth of uh, worth of data and um, or spreadsheets, I should say. And uh, yeah, they basically could pinpoint when he was reading, you know, what he was reading, and that kind of stuff. So kind of interesting statistic. But I guess, you know, we don't read the T's and C's when we get them, but uh, they'll probably buried in there is, is something about the fact they're keeping track of what you're doing. So you ever yeah, surprised this, by this at all? This does surprise me in the least. I mean, think about whenever you instrument your app and put in analytics and things like that. Sure, yeah, You course. track everything, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that Amazon does exactly the same thing. Right, right. I don't see yeah. anything inherently malicious in what they're doing. I mean, just like with, with everything else, it has, there's a danger of, of the data they're collecting getting into the wrong hands and people doing sure. malicious things with it. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but just the fact that they're collecting it, I don't, I don't view as malicious myself. Well, it's supposed to also that you know if you want these devices to tailor the content they deliver to you based on what you like or don't like or what you've experienced and then you know they're trying to basically create affinities for you right that so that you'll you'll enjoy their their product i know i know netflix does that for instance i was hearing something uh, last week uh, a tech podcast about how um netflix keeps track of what you watch and and so the menu you see and the menu i see would be would be different in terms of what shows are presented right, right i mean you get right. the, the trending ones and what Whatever, but but they'll sort of do a new for you kind of thing, right? Or since you like this other show, or since you thumbed up this one show, you'll probably like these other shows, right? So, and in the Amazon case, it, it I think it improves actually the functionality of the app. It, there's there's uh-huh. has to be a way for them to if you say you're reading multiple books at the same time and you want to mm. switch between one to the other, well, it has to keep track of where you were on right on right. Uh, what page you were on. So so it has to know what book it was and, and, and in that sense, and it. It needs to keep track of how, what time you're reading or how long you're reading, so it can give you things like the you know eight minutes left in this chapter message that that the Kindle gives. So I think a lot of that is useful information. Now you could argue, for sure, you could argue that well, maybe you could just store that data on the local device and uh, and not send it up to the server. But, but then, how annoyed would you be if you picked up your iPad and it went and didn't pick up where you left off on your phone? Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's right. right, right. Yep. So yeah, so yep. it's syncing across multiple devices. There's no surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. I mean, I did. I did kind of cite the sources, the Guardian. I'm not sure that they're the arbiters of truth and justice in the world, right? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's sure. it's it's not unreasonable reasonable to call it out and say, "Hey, this is happening." Yeah. So, if you do care about this, you're now aware mm-hmm. of it and and take steps to protect yourself against whatever uh, whatever threat may come out of that. So, yeah, I, I great for kudos to them for pointing it out. 
but personally, I don't. I don't think it's such a huge issue myself. Right. Right. Well, I mean, if you, and if you didn't want people to track your doing, you should you know defend yourself with tools like VPN right. softwares and and not have things sync online and share your public data, your data out there with somebody. Because at the end of the day, you're asking these people. It's like having a personal assistant, if you will, to keep track of. Hey, remember what where I was in the book when I pick it up again? You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. But you know, just like with everything else, I think everyone has a different threshold on threshold of of how tolerant they are to mm-hmm. in, with respect to privacy in general and with respect to each particular type of data. Like I personally don't care if Amazon knows what books I'm reading. Great. You know, I bought most of them from Amazon anyway. Right. So, yeah. so yeah. they know. Yeah. Great. Uh, but there are other pieces of data that maybe I don't want to know. And everyone else has their own, want them to know. I mean, and, and, and everyone else has, everyone has their own personal thresholds and they can vary from, from type of data to type of data. Yeah. So, well, so having like- this stuff be, be visible is, is, is a good thing. Yeah. And, and the other angle of that too is that same on the same lines is that um, I mean when I go in to reorder something that I've ordered at Amazon before like a consumable product right um, I like to be able to uh, rather than trying to dig through the you know the millions and millions of listings on Amazon I'd rather just go to my old orders look at what I ordered you know back in October mm-hmm. and reorder it you know mm-hmm. um, may may not be available at this time but you know at least that way like like you when you go to a grocery store or liquor store or whatever you want to get your favorite you know bottle of whatever right um, you want to know that it's there like you know you don't want to be surprised by things changing on you or not being available later on so mm-hmm. yeah yeah you want we want the we want convenience and we want to complain about the convenience so uh, speaking of, of your comfort level you mentioned something that i wanted to ask a follow-up on with jaime a couple of times last week you mentioned threat model i think you said depends on your threat model that's right yeah can you sort of elaborate on that what you mean what that expression means i may I be mean, misusing I, I the term because i'm not a security yeah. person uh, i've always internalized <laughs> threat model to be if you were to think about or plan out what sort of threats, um, you know, bad actors, bad actions could they take against you? Are you going up against? So if you are, you know, some sort of politically exposed person, right, you are, you know, the Duchess of York, that's a little bit different than being random person in Topeka, Kansas, right? Um, the, the amount of people who are looking to attack your accounts, if you're, you know, celebrity or government official, you know, that sort of thing, or, you know, the kind of people who are looking to attack and then and the number who try to attack if you're just random person living out there in you know daily life world it differs uh, whether you have you know children or not as an example is a, is a threat model that i've i've brought up uh, as an example just to, to poke fun at uh friends who have um is it the google pixel 4 i want to say that has a, a face id equivalent and they say oh yeah i like this better than you know the fingerprint sensor i was like well let me think about that because on the iphone the iphone 10 you can set the setting that says you know your eyes have to be looking at the uh, at the device before your face will unlock and they're like yeah but like you know it's fine nobody's gonna like hold it up to my face i'm like you told me you have small children your threat model includes you being asleep on the couch and them holding this up to your <laughs> face <laughs> right and it's a completely different threat model than like you know yeah, if you're, totally. you know a governor or congressperson or something right like it's completely different but that's the way i've internalized threat model like what sort of factors come into the kind of attacks that can go on for you so for me i use face id because i'm not a celebrity with tons of people trying to hack me i'm not a government official with people trying to access my information. So the, the security benefits I get and the usability benefits I get are worth, you know, the trade-off analysis for me. It, it may not be the case if people are like trying to make perfect masks of your face and have lots of high quality reference material to do so. Sure. Well, it was also an interesting story today and a friend of mine at work pointed out um, that the Deutsche Bank, well, because because in banking, there's a lot of different threats, obviously, like, you know, 
money laundering and and you know bribery and things like that that they have to watch for right and they're re- re- required by the regulators to look for that kind of behavior and there was a posting about uh, in the Toronto Star today about how Deutsche Bank had been for years using an algorithm to look at transactions to try and find you know suspicious uh, transactions that would would obviously point to money laundering and, and uh, uh, funding terrorism and that kind of stuff and apparently there was a flaw in their logic so for the last seven or eight years they they've been under the under the misguided delusion that their their tool was helping them detect this stuff in fact it wasn't whoops yeah <laughs> that's unfortunate I've, I've definitely been on the wrongs I distinctly remember trying to use my Bank of America credit card to purchase a ticket to um, NS North and it got blocked by Bank of America that suspicious <laughs> Quebec City Quebec province place yeah. yeah because I'm sitting in Bellevue Washington at, you know at the home office in in trying to you know transact in Canadian monies in Toronto or uh, no probably Ottawa I would guess so yeah that's yeah, you know that, that sort of thing could be hyper aggressive I have not noticed as much of that sort of thing so far but you know threat modeling and, and risk is what they're trying to, to deal with with fraud I had one a few years back uh, with also with Bank of America I was in Las Vegas and used my my Bank of America card to try to take out cash at a casino in Vegas on the, the first day of my trip to Vegas on a Friday and it got rejected so I called the number and found out that uh, because I was trying to take money out in a casino in Vegas and that was an unusual behavior for me they shut down my card and I could call on Monday morning to get my card turned back on wow <laughs> yeah, that was about the so worst what day, what day was what day of the week was it you got shut down on Friday it was or Friday like? Friday evening man the beginning of my trip my weekend trip in Vegas wow that's horrible yeah that's that sucks because a lot of the stuff nowadays is a bit more self-service for a lot of these reasons and even then I, I still am unreasonable about making sure when I go to the airport that I buy even the smallest little thing you know with my card to sort of show the pattern to the system like look airport airport stuff in that new city okay I'm sure that's good right like that's reasonable behavior wow. that you might take yeah it's funny like um, we hear this all the time like when people whenever like a new phone is coming out or a new computer or, or you know WWDC lottery tickets right that uh, people people's transactions get you know denied by the by the bank because like why are you buying a $1,500 ticket you know in the middle of a middle of the week you know <laughs> that's why I definitely appreciate those systems that are smart enough to give you something they're like the mobile app it's like hey was this is this you go you know click yes to accept otherwise you should contact the company to deal with fraudulent activity right like that's definitely much appreciated in the in the mobile era yeah interesting all right so you, you've got a posting here Jaime about uh, something about a 16-inch MacBook Pro? Yeah, this is a follow-up that we, we didn't get around to last episode because I had not actually set up my new 16-inch MacBook Pro by then, and I have now. Uh, finally got around to doing that, so in the show notes for us, I have left some pithy reminders to myself about what ended up happening here, because a big reason I even set it up sort of as uh, recently as I did is to try to get Apple TV Plus the free year of subscription with my new device purchase, and it was a, it was a bit of a journey. So I think at the after show of, of, of a couple episodes ago, we talked about Carbon Copy Cloner. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I tried it out. It works pretty fast. does a really good job of copying stuff to uh, to device. I even made a new APFS volume on my uh, USB drive. And uh, I went to go uh, set up for the migration assistant on my new MacBook Pro. And it said, oh, you can't choose this Carbon Copy Cloner volume because it is a case-sensitive backup. And what you need is case-insensitive. <laughs> And I was very offended by this because nowhere had I ever had
had any clue that it happened to me. And, and, and so my, my original MacBook Pro is a 2012 Retina MacBook Pro. It certainly was on HPFS Plus at some point, right, in its life before switching over to APFS. And in no, no, none of those upgrades, whenever that switchover happened, was I ever given an option of like, hey, bro, would you like to update to case insensitive file systems? Where uh, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, you know, think about a file called dog. Uh, any case sensitive system, capital D, lowercase o, lowercase g, is a completely different file than all caps DOG. Or yeah. even capital case or name case. Yeah. 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 Any combination you might do there. And in a case insensitive format, it'll say, I don't really care. Those are the same, right? And I just yeah, yeah. You know, make it well, traditional Unix is case sensitive, case sensitive, eh? So it was a huge bummer for me um, that that didn't work because Carbon Copy Cloner like did a really good job. Like it's super yeah, fast. It, does, it, it copies exactly what you give it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I ended up going to my fallback plan, which was Time Machine, which for reasons that are unclear to me was the proper format that the migration assistant liked. So wait a minute. So you think your you think your your old system was case sensitive? I guess so. I uh, I did when you create the when you create a when you use this this utility to to create a volume, it asks you if you want to create a case insensitive or case sensitive GUID style Mac style volume, right? Journal, sorry, journaled and, and case sensitive or insensitive. The, the default choice is is case insensitive, right? Interesting that I didn't if if that was an option on the version of Carbon Cloner that I was or sorry uh, uh, the disk utility that I was using to get yeah. that volume. Yeah. Um, I completely did not pay attention to what was there, or I um, accidentally okay. clicked it or something because I don't remember. Millennials, that. I tell you. Yeah. Hey, well, a- along those lines, I found a very interesting file manager bug. Uh, I don't know if this is new in iOS 13 or if it's been around for a long time, but for sure it's there now. So using file manager in iOS, uh, I had a directory on a in the file system that was all lowercase, and I used the file manager to check if the file exists. Technically, actually, it was a directory. Check if it exists. But the one I was checking to exist happened to have start with a capital letter, and the rest were lowercase. And file manager said, "Oh no, this does not exist. This directory does not exist." Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Then in my code, the next thing was, "Well, if it doesn't exist, let's create it." So the one that's all lowercase exists. I know, but file manager saying the one that starts with the capital letter does not exist. And then when the when file manager tries to create the one that starts with the capital layer letter, it fails. You're talking about file manager on iOS, right? On iOS. Yep. Yeah, because iOS is case sensitive. Yeah, but we got, then, bur- we got but, burned by that in the early days. Yeah. But but why then? Well, that was well. Yes, that's true. Yes, yes. And Xcode used to have a lot of issues with that, right? But but it's inconsistent is the problem, right? If if it's if it is truly case sensitive, then then because the lowercase all lowercase version was there, then checking if the uppercase one existed should have returned false, and then I should have been able to create one that was uppercase because it's truly case sensitive. If it's truly case insensitive, then checking, matter. Yeah. Yeah. checking the presence should have also said, yes, this already exists and therefore creating should fail. So the the creating failed was, I think was correct. It's the checking that it exists failing was was wrong. Right. So we so we got burned by this or like back in 2010, we were writing your first uh, iPad, app, iPad app 
up because mm. we were dealing with publishers and and you know we were dealing with art directors who were giving us you know batches of files and um, we found that uh, like if you if you created a, a reference to an image in yeah in a, yeah I remember it, the same and you, problem and, you, yep. and it was it was like a lowercase or uppercase or what it didn't matter on the Mac right because the right. simulator on Mac OS is not case sensitive but when you went to run it on a device you're like where's the image it's not showing up what's going right. on and then right. then we kind of I because of my old publishing hat you know back in the day everything was like case sensitive you, you know, long story short but the you know I, I spotted oh well it's a capital A Apple as opposed to a lowercase Apple yeah. that's why it's not being able to pick it up right and remember Git Git in Xcode used to have enormous issues with that kind of thing oh, yeah 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 so so here's my question for you Jaime because because now I'm now I'm doing a face palm based on what you just said so you went to the you went to Time Machine how many years did that take to restore um not long at all actually so the but it's a local local volume right right so like I, I was using um this Samsung one terabyte super tiny portable drive that had enough space for uh the Time Machine backup of my uh 512 gig uh, old MacBook Pro and right. had enough space right. when I made the volume to handle the carbon copy cloner volume uh and it didn't take long okay. it was you know ish it was uh maybe an hour to restore the yeah you got lucky because i use i use time, time capsules like on the network and they sometimes take 14 hours to restore and then you find it halfway through like after eight hours oh there's a problem <laughs> it won't restore yeah which is I, why i was my i always go back to carbon copy cloner i i could see the carbon copy cloner was definitely a lot faster and, and, and should i use it in the future i'll pay very close attention to the file system sure, uh, question yeah, yeah. given that but um now at this point in the story i have a freshly copied over and migrated over you know old macbook data to and apps and stuff to new macbooks i'm like great let me go fire up this apple tv app and uh, sign up for apple tv plus this is where i'm stuck in a catch-22 because apple tv plus is like yo you could sign up and get seven days free and then 4.99 a month thereafter yeah yeah we got those messages too yeah or you can go home and get out of here and i'm like what why (laughs) what's going on here so i'm like let me just you know check out their system updates um maybe i need to reboot this machine and after sort of thinking about it for a while i said wait a minute is it because this is by all appearances the same exact machine that i had before is whatever algorithm logic that uh, apple tv plus is using to determine oh this is your new device is like yo that ain't a new device i'm like come on you know it's coming from a 16 inch macbook pro just look at the metadata um so I ended up using the the very handy Apple Business Chat stuff through through the Messages app. I'm chatting nice, with yeah. you know uh, customer support, and they're trying as you know as best they could. You know, is it on you know which version of the operating system? All right, try it on your iPhone. You know, it, what version of the operating system is that on? Try it on your iPad. Um, reboot these, and they they went through everything. It took like an hour's worth of flow time while I was you know watching TV to to finally have them realize, oh, you're going to have to talk to the Apple Care folks. Here's your mm, phone number. Okay. And I'm like, oh, oh, good. The Apple Care hours have finished an hour ago. So I'm going to have to wait till tomorrow morning. <sighs> nice. <laughs> so, so I do. And I go through customer support through there and uh, get bounced around to a couple different divisions as they each try their different things. And finally, I got the right person who's like, well, we've tried everything. We're just going to give you a coupon code here to redeem a free year of Apple TV Plus. So wow. finally, it was able to, to get that. And now 
now I have my my years subscription started. Yeah, it's funny. I've heard of that too because I because you know again we, with these these devices that you know we deal with sometimes they get weird messages like you know sometimes it's like instantaneous and it says yeah welcome to the new world here you go right and then otherwise it could be that maybe a preference file got copied over or clobbered your uh, your account or something like that or whatever. Yeah, that's it's weird. It's almost it's almost like you should have gone in, set it up, and then then backed out. Like because I I can show you how to back out an OS and put it back to its factory as well, right? And then you start the whole process over again, right? Just to get the Apple Pay or Apple or Apple Music going, right? So that's totally weird. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, note to my future self: I've been do, doing this again for for similar reasons. I will definitely start it up as if it's a brand new device. Get whatever freebies are owed to me, and then wipe that sucker yeah, wipe and it, restore sorry, yeah, from yeah. backup to do yeah. what I how I wanted to be set up. Yeah, uh, and yeah. funny that you mentioned Apple Pay as an accident because um, a consequence of me migrating over the way that I did um, was that Apple Pay during the setup of the laptop was like, no, you can't set up Apple Pay on this device. I'm like, what? What? Really? Because your security settings have changed. I'm like, no, they haven't. I didn't change anything. What are you talking about? Please leave me alone. Now you're using a T2 chip, right? So it's sort of related to that where uh, hydrating, rehydrating a, a, a pick that I had at some point where um, Command R, when you're booting up your Mac, will take you into like safe mode or whatever the equivalent name is. Yeah, recovery mode, recovery mode. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And from there, you can go into the proper utilities, which in this case was for me to go in and check whatever little box it was that says, yes, use the T2 chip. Oh, really? Because my old oh. 2012 MacBook Pro, of course, did not have one of those. Um, so I had to do that, rebooted the machine. This is the link and, you put in here? Uh, no. <laughs> this uh, oh, okay. that, that link there is uh, related to the file system nuttiness that uh, the Windows world went through that as well, going from uh, FAT32, uh, was it FAT32? Which way am I saying? From uh, short short names to long names and, and having backwards compatibility for that. So I thought that was amazing. But yeah, um, it was it was an adventure to get my new Mac Pro set up as if it was the old one with everything configured the way I like and have new hotness like Apple Pay and Apple TV Plus subscribed and everything. Yeah, you know, it's interesting about that T2 thing you mentioned too, because we, we've come across that lately in some of the late model Macs that we have because, you know, we often, you know, the, the Macs we have don't belong to an individual person. They, they use it for a while and then if they leave the company or whatever, we wipe them because they're all managed. We wipe them and and install a fresh OS and then re-enroll them back into the into the MDM program, right? But lately, I found that some, and of course, in order to stop people from doing stuff, we the the company puts a firmware password on, right? But uh, which prevents you from you know walking away with the computer and doing th- doing whatever you want with it, right? Because you can't do anything on the drive without unlocking the firmware, right? But lately, somebody like some of the like 2019, 2018 machines, I think it's probably like you said because they have that T2 chip in them. You can't even unlock the firmware. Like it's it's weird. We have to get you know IT to send over a, a, a wipe command for us to be able to properly format these guys. Weird. That's probably what it is. There's probably probably some key that's in the in the T2 chip is preventing you know people from tampering with the with the machine, right? So Apple's getting tricksy. It's good. To, I mean, it's good that they're locking this stuff down. To be honest with you, because I mean, like how many how many Macs and iPhones have been stolen over the years, and if you can just instantly wipe it, you know, then uh, yeah, it's another one of the things in the category of it's really, really good for the customer. Apple 
house customer, but not necessarily so good for the developer. Yeah, well, a friend, I think friend friend of mine who's a big security guy, he sort of said the the opposite of security is convenience. Yeah, yeah, right. And that's, I think that's a huge a huge thing to get your head wrapped around when you're talking about this stuff, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's a pain in the ass, but you know what? At the end of the day, you know, you're probably better off that they're locking your your Visa card if some suspicious guy is trying to withdraw money in Vegas, right? That's just Ruben guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, this link you got here on? The worst, the worst part about that was that there was nothing I could do about it because they were closed for the weekend. Yeah, for a weekend, yeah. I think yeah. you've told me this before, right? Yeah. Like, so how did you survive the weekend? Like, did you just charge I, everything I did, in your room? I did what what I hate to do is I had to take a cash advance on a credit card, which is a wow. horrible, horrible thing to have to do. But how did you do that if your card was locked? Different card? I used a credit card. Oh, you were trying to get cash out. Oh, you were trying to get cash just, I was just trying to take cash out of an ATM. Yeah. Yeah. ATM yeah. In, the, in the casino. Yeah. Are, do you still owe interest on that cash withdrawal? Because I, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many times no, like, I, 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 th- I, I, paid I have a few it, cards that sure. still carry interest on them because I made a mistake of paying once. And I, I made a mistake paying on one card once, and then I tried to re- reverse the transaction transaction mm. and of course they charge me because now it's a cash withdrawal they charge me interest on it right oh. yeah yeah if if i ever have a situation where there's something questionable like that i will always just overpay what my balance is the next day yeah and pay more and than my off. balance yeah. Yeah. just just to be safe just to be sure because they do play these awful awful yeah. games where yeah. where once the, the the worst part is uh and i don't know if this is illegal anymore but it used to be uh where normally when you buy something on your card, even if you have a balance in your card, that particular purchase, the new purchase, you won't get charged interest on for 30 days or until your yeah, until your next, exactly. next statement. Yeah. But once you get into uh, this this mode of oh something went wrong and now we've you know you've tripped this uh, grace period thing you know whatever whatever something went wrong, then they'll start charging you interest immediately on new charges as well. Really new yes. ones? Wow. Yeah, yeah. Now again oh. that. I, that might be one of those things that used to be legal and is no longer legal, and I hope that's true. But for yeah. sure, it was true. It happened to me once because because I screwed up about something. Yeah, I've, and, I've learned yeah. the surefire way to get a yeah. get a credit increase on a card seems to yeah. be carry a balance. Mm. You carry a balance, they say, oh, Mister Ruben, here's another you know couple of thousand bucks for you to play with, right? Yeah. They just well, I, ref- it, yeah. I, I refuse to carry a balance. <laughs> yeah, well, some of us don't live in that world. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Would be nice. Anyway, um, uh, Jaime, what's your Apple Pay thingy? Yeah, after the balance discussion, I feel awkward about this, but let's talk about <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Apple Pay balances uh, uh, more. I guess maybe not balances, but uh, this article here um, that recaps uh, data compiled by a research firm called Bernstein says that it projects that Apple Pay, which accounts for about five percent of global card transactions, is on pace to handle uh, one in ten. That would be ten percent of such payments by twenty twenty five. Those of you following along at home, that would be just a little bit past the one decade life of Apple Pay. About six How do you years. Mean one like decade? 20, 2014-ish was when that was launched. Apple Pay was out in 2014? Been around that long? Yeah, it came out with the, um, the Touch ID sensor, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, right, yeah. That was the final piece because they had Passbook, which became Wallet, and they had uh, Touch ID. Maybe it was the second Touch ID sensor. I can't remember which one it was, but it was pretty pretty early on. Yeah, it was the iPhone 5, right? I think it was yeah. 5. It might be the 5S. I don't, I don't No, recall. I think it was the 5. Pretty sure it was 5. It, it was definitely when they had the um, Touch ID sensor and the secure enclave to do a lot of what it does. So it came out that early, 
Apple Pay? Because I thought the watch yeah, was when I'm it came out. I'm looking that up now. No, no, you're right. Tap to pay, right? Huh. Well, I was, I was reading another article, too, about the same thing, that apparently Apple's on on target to be like a like a billion-dollar business. Apple, sorry, Apple Pay's on target to be a billion-dollar interest in, industry soon, if it isn't already. If I find that link. It's definitely useful. Um, I think it's something that people who develop websites and apps should absolutely support, just kind of where things are mm. going. Um, yeah, I don't have much else to add beyond that. And I, clearly, yeah. I talked about my uh, how willing I was to go debug what was going on with Apple Pay set up on my new Mac. So yeah. So how did you how did you how did you come to the conclusion that it was the uh, D2 D2 chip? Because I uh, researched what the well, I researched what the what the error code was that it gave me. Okay. And then people online say, "Oh yeah, you, you got to go flick this switch, and you're going to have to do Command R to go into recovery mode and go to whichever particular utility it was. It's like a security utility or something." Yeah. So here remember. here it is on nine to five Mac. Um, Apple Pay revenue is heading toward a multi-billion dollar business. I'll pay. Right. And it was introduced on September 9th, 2014. You're right. That's the same article yeah. you posted, I think. Did you post from 9 to 5, Jaime? No, it was a QZ. See, this is the thing. Is I think these articles quotes. all get picked up by the same people because it literally says the same stuff in the paragraphs. The yeah, people are just the same. recapping what the literal report was, I think. Kind of like what this show does, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Not word for word, though. We add flavor <laughs> and anecdotes. Color commentary. So, so it does say if five percent, it's a, it's basically seven trillion. Call it seven trillion dollars in round numbers. If five percent of those payments, this is the word for word part. If five percent of those payments are made are made by Apple Pay, then it's three hundred and fifty billion worth of transactions. Three hundred fifty billion dollars worth of transactions. Wow. If Apple could take zero point one five percent of that, that's about fifteen percent, they'd make a cool five hundred and twenty five million dollars in twenty eighteen. They would have made that much. Wow. Hmm. I'm still annoyed when places don't take Apple Pay and I have to pull out my Apple card. Like an animal? Yeah, yeah. Like you just cut like my it's... percentage down by half. Exactly. 50%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look what you're doing to my stock price. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I'm like, what is this, 2013? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we get that. We still have that here, too, because we have here we have tap to pay. So people are using their, their tapping with their card because it's got a, an RFID chip in it. Or they use their phone or they use their watch, right? And like I said, a lot of merchants don't want to pay the extra 1%, 2% or whatever it is they lose. Uh, so they don't have the, the readers, right? I think that's a pay, like probably pay to rent them per month and that kind of stuff too, right? It's probably, probably painful for the small, small mom and pop shops, you know? All right. Well, speaking of paying for things, um, this is a quick one. I just, I just uh, saw this in a, we were talking last week about um, things, new things in Xcode, or sorry, new things in iOS. Where we are, iOS, no, I guess it's Xcode 4, 11.4. One of the things in the release notes, so we, I don't think, don't know, we don't think we mentioned it, but um, I was watching a video recap of, of uh, from, I believe it was 9 to 5. Apple is saying, get your apps ready for in-app purchases. Hmm. So watch OS 6.2 is going to be able to support in-app purchases, which I think will be a, a big boon for watch developers. I don't, again, I don't know anybody that's making a standalone watch app, but they, I mean, they split it out from from the iOS app a while ago, right? So now I guess people are making dedicated watch apps. They can, but and it's good to see that well, this is on App Store now, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah the they introduced own... standalone apps this year or this past year, right? So yeah, so if you're out there and you're working on a watch app or you're thinking about it, start putting those in-app purchases in there. That'll be cool. All right, continuing on the the banking theme here, Jaime. Yeah, this one is a result of uh, this is follow up to me talking about the open banking and PSD two, the Payment Services Directive two last episode. I got uh, some pretty 
pretty nice feedback about that. So I mm-hmm. felt that I should follow up with a, a little link to openbanking.org.uk, which does a really good job of explaining, like, if you watch their handy little video, or if you just read the three little boxes about what this is even mean, seems like it's pretty much in line with what I said. So I feel pretty good about that. Mm. People wanted to get a better sense of how that works. And to maybe this might help you visualize what I was saying in words, uh, what was going on and how I perceive how you described your, um, your authentication through your bank with government services. Sort of oh, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Visualize, visualize that. It's not exactly the same, but I think it's very similar to what, uh, what I described. Cool beans. So you've got a, um, right through your story here. What's that about? Oh, that was, <laughs> that was me <laughs> planting a flag in the main topics in the show notes and saying, so, this is so nobody could come along and post the same article. Is that why? Well, so I don't know if you noticed, but when I've been posting mine, I've been putting the day in the <laughs> in parentheses. <laughs> and actually, I went to post two things. Was it today or yesterday? I went to post two things. Yesterday, I guess, on the way home. I went to post something in Spotcast and something in, in MTJC. And I, and I had I went and copied the, the title, which is what I was doing. Then I come over to the page and I look. And of course, Jaime's already put it in there. Right? I'm like, oh, great. You are three hours in the future, man. Like, you got to you gotta get that uh, on the train to work. Yeah, so I took I found the con meme on on uh, online and made myself uh, posting to MTJC Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> the best part yeah. about this whole you know multi episode saga now was when you sent some evidence that as far as I yeah, can I tell, know I was in my I got favor. It, yours link was above it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's me. It, me a culpa, right? Because I because I found that this is when I actually the timestamp when I actually put the story in, and right above it was yours, your same link, right? Yeah, it, it's it's such a good one that of course multiple hosts saw it and decided I think it we need to start sure. adding an actual timestamp, not just a date stamp. Yeah, I was thinking that was really second. Yeah, yeah, or I could just not post anything like I did this week. <laughs> That's another solution. I could just follow Mark's lead, right? Uh, hey, it works. <laughs> 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 I used to have this problem. I would find a great post and. I'd I'd go on there and be ready to put it on and one of you guys would already put it there so i kind of gave up okay gotcha it's true well it's actually true so this is a again another another problem we have with this show is we record on wednesdays and then thursday really cool stuff comes out and so Rene rich's uh vector vector vlog are we calling it a vlog um posted a story about uh, his fellow canadian uh posted a story about the blackberry and about the history of the blackberry and their various incarnations and how the, the title of the article is why the iphone killed the blackberry um and of course you can watch the video at your leisure, but uh, just to give you a TLDR, um, he talks about a number of different things. You know, the that the um, initially Apple was thinking about having the iPhone come out of the iPod, but that didn't seem to be quite the right way to go. And uh, the Blackberries came out of pagers because I don't know if you guys remember pagers, but those of us who had them hated them um, because you know they best basically meant they could get you anywhere and they could call you. And but all you got was a phone number to call back and and maybe a, like a cryptic character and message like nine one one or something like that. Um, so you had no idea why, you know, you had to go find a phone and call in and find out what these people wanted who were trying to get a hold of you. Um, so they, they they bolted on the ability to read email on two lines and Motorola had a product and BlackBerry had a product. That was the beginning of the BlackBerry. And so the BlackBerry grew out of pager technology and they they had a Java-based OS for the longest time. And um, and then they had this messaging thing. Um, B, uh, what do you call it? B, BlackBerry messaging server, BMS or something like that or something like that. Anyway, and it was like, it was used by the U.S. government and the whole bit. It was all encrypted through uh, Waterloo, Ontario. Meanwhile, Apple had just, you know, merged or bought uh, Next and had, now they had Mac OS and that's where the, where they went with, with their, um, with the iPhone. The iPhone grew up, up out of that thing. And then there was a whole sort of back and forth with,
with different uh, iterations. BlackBerry had physical keyboards, uh, whereas the world was moving towards, you know, a full screen experience with like an iPhone type thing. Apple I mean, BlackBerry tried to change over. They, they had that QNX system um, that they brought out for their playbook, which was their tablet. Uh, that didn't didn't uh, survive the, the wars, as it were. And uh, eventually, um, the last iteration, the last kick at the can was uh, was that BlackBerry uh, RIM. Uh, I guess they're still researching motion. They um, they brought, or I think they rebranded as BlackBerry, but they recently um, had somebody else making the hardware in Japan or something and running an Android system. They finally gave up and uh, they've just uh, decided uh, like a couple of weeks ago or a couple of days ago to can that product. So the BlackBerry is finally dead, you know, after supporting Flash when the iPhone wouldn't and so on and so forth. So interesting story. I still see Blackberries everywhere in, in Toronto, which is the surprising part. Well, that was Blackberry Center, right? Central, where you are. Well, it's a little, little, yeah, sort of. Uh, I mean, sort of compared. To I here. mean, it's sort of Toronto to Toronto to Waterloo is kind of like uh, San Francisco to San Jose kind of distance, right? Right. right. Down the road a ways, but yeah, from your perspective, we're right on top of each other. Yep. Anyway, so, what do you got there, Jaime? Yeah, it, operating. Yeah, I think folks might forget because it has been a while, but um, Blackberries were the hotness, right? For for yeah. Uh, oh yeah. I guess they were might have been called smartphones then, but they're certainly not modern smartphones. They're like the the proto smartphone era. Um, people called them crackberries because people just yeah. really loved what they were really good at, right? Messaging and email was were definitely top notch. And even the, the web experience, such as it was, was good enough in most cases. So it wasn't really uh, an obvious slam dunk that the iPhone was going to sort of do what it did. Um, and even as late as 2013, one of your very hosts, that would be me, looks like back in uh, March 27th, 2013, I wrote on my, my blog on devwithahair.com, you know, which mobile operating systems will survive. And I cover oh, seven of them, right? So I evaluate at the time, Android, iOS, Windows Phone, rest in peace, BlackBerry 10, which was the new hotness operating system coming out of a rim, or I guess renamed BlackBerry, um, Tizen from Samsung, Firefox OS, and Ubuntu for phones to round out the seven. And if you're there I'm listening, to which one's going to win? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. it wasn't a who will win, but who will survive. And, and so far, uh, okay. Android and iOS Tizen to a lesser degree, mostly on Samsung's um, uh, peripheral devices like their um, so the, the gear. I think it's I the remember watch. when Ubuntu for phones came out, and it was it was going to change the world, wasn't it? <laughs> Oops, <really? laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's a lot. So you, you know, even what would that have been in six years into the iPhone's life, it wasn't necessarily like a given of what was going to happen. And then Microsoft was still definitely a, a big player in there. And then and you know, research in motion now BlackBerry was maybe on a comeback like hey they they sat on their laurels rested on their laurels they've they've figured it out now you can see what to do and it just didn't work out that way so um it may not have been just uh, the iPhone that did it but it certainly was the triggering event but you know but but it's interesting that you'd pick that time period too because back then in that I mean basically IT departments were buying blackberries they were putting them into companies because they they based on their experience with the blackberry servers and all that kind of stuff that they, they just felt that was the right way to go and you know again as opposed to the iPhone or even Android and uh, it was another significant thing um, yeah it's just that that uh, Microsoft had licensed Active Sync um, and their technology their sort of exchange technologies to Apple right which made uh, made it possible for the iPhones to, to deal in in the sort of ex- 
exchange world for a while too, right? And still to this day, right? So it's interesting how these sort of players came on, came and went. And yeah, like, you know, Windows Phone was, was trying to make a run for it for a while. And yeah, interesting how, uh, how this stuff all called. I mean, you didn't be. mention that one that was the uh, the last dregs of Palm OS that was bought by HP or something. Trio? Trio? Was it the Trio? I don't even remember what it was called. The Trio was a device. I don't remember the OS. Yeah. It? Palm OS, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think by 2013... Was it already dead by then? It Maybe. wasn't dead dead. It had turned into like smart bridges and stuff, I think. <laughs> I can't remember. It wasn't like... A, I think by then it wasn't going to... It was very clear it was not going to be a serious competitor for uh, mobile devices. So wait a minute. You gave Android excellent viability and iOS only good viability? Mm-hmm. I wow. would argue... Mm-hmm. I would argue over. that I'm, I'm very, very correct considering that like 80% of the world uses Android and only about 20... That's okay. They can be wrong. That's not to be in the majority. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, a big part of that, and I don't know, I'd have to like really read... It's, it's pretty extensive, such as it is for, for a single column article. Um, I was giving a lot of weight to, to Windows Phone. And it, Tim, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, Blackberry's, you know, sort of love within the you know, IT departments. Um, I think, especially looking back in hindsight 2020, being what it is, like it was a huge mistake for Microsoft to not focus first on the enterprise and what they're good at yeah, and what iOS and, there, yeah. and, and certainly Android at the time were terrible at and say, hey, we can dislodge BlackBerry as like, look, you already buy Windows licenses from us. You already know that we know how to handle Active Directory. We can handle this and then grow into the consumer space. Um, their, their focus on trying to become the iPhone really meant that um, time caught up with them and eventually it was very clear that Android had gotten good enough for IT departments to accept, whereas it could have been a legitimate third competitor had it started from there. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder too if like the, the you know, back in those days and early like 2010 or whatever when the iPhone came out, you know, Microsoft had the world, had the business world, you know, by the short and curlies because everybody had Windows machines and Exchange servers and stuff like that. I mean, they were not to say there weren't Mac people around, but they had the majority of the market. They had like 85% of, of the market, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe more. And then, um, but BlackBerry had that too, though. Like they had that market on the side. But, but I think Apple has proven that there's clearly way more money in the consumer business than there is in, in enterprise, right? Um, you know, something Apple could never crack was the enterprise, but by the same token, look where they are today. Everybody has a either Android or, or iOS device, right? So there's obviously the money's out here, not necessarily in enterprise. And I think that maybe what Windows was trying to do was trying to focus on getting some of that market share from, from consumers, right? You know, who were probably, at the time, people were probably still using PCs and probably still are, right? To an extent, like in terms of desktops and laptops and stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as uh, as prevalent as Macs may be um, in the developer community and, and certainly for people who own iPhones and that sort of thing. Right, designed too, yeah. Um, and, and Mac continues to do really, really well, um, despite some of the, you know, the foibles related to the keyboard. Um, but if it was, you know, a war on the battlefield, like Macs would easily lose just from numbers, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. By the way, did you hear that Taika Waititi in his speech about after his interview after winning the Oscar said Apple's got to do something about those keyboards? <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and he and he's right. He's right. So he is. I yeah. have well, three. Well, they fixed. They have fixed it, but you know. <laughs> 
sense. True, but but maybe not if he's like a like a MacBook Air user, right? Um, That's true. Oh, really? You know, okay. constantly traveling. You know, I don't know. I, he didn't say specifically which model. I'm going to assume he doesn't have a 2016 MacBook Pro, but I have my 2012 yeah. MacBook Pro, which has by far the best keyboard of the three devices that I have here. My work mm-hmm. uh, Touch Bar MacBook Pro, which is from also from 2019, I think, but, but prior to the introduction of the 16-inch. Yeah. And with that butterfly keyboard, it is... And I understand that there are people who, who like it, but from my standpoint, it is not comfortable. I might as well just be tapping on glass. Really? The 2016 one is pretty good. It's not as good as the 2012 keyboard, but it's it's it feels close enough to feel good enough. Mm. Now I'm still going to keep it away from the sandy beach. I'm paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> I want somebody else to try that on YouTube. Uh, hashtag AskMTJC if you do do that. Um, but I'm not as afraid as I was to, to upgrade as I had been for years. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the open source stuff. Yeah. This is an article from uh, whitesourcesoftware.com where they're talking about the uh, trends and predictions for open source licenses in 2020. Uh, and they talk about, you know, which ones were, were trending in, in 2019. And I'll skip right down to one of the charts that covers the uh, the top open source licenses in 2019. And it works out more or less like I would expect, uh, just given my own sort of feel for the open source community, such as it is, and sort of my own, I'm being quite honest, my own biases towards how I feel about different licenses. So um, at about... 27-ish percent is uh, the MIT license, which is very permissive. Uh, just behind at number two, about 25-ish percent is Apache 2.0. Then a pretty big drop down to 12-ish percent for the GPL v3, which is a not permissive license. And the GPL v2, also around 10%, and then so on and so forth down to the original BSD license. Um, I'm kind of wondering if this is playing into the way that uh, folks are having to deal with this on a uh, on a personal basis, like, you know, indie developers, or if this is more from a uh, legal department sort of standpoint, um, having dealt with uh, getting things through uh, legal outside counsel review stuff. Um, I'll tell you the, the guidance back in 20, 2010, maybe, maybe 2009 is pretty similar to guidance that I've gotten at completely different companies and completely different era of like, we really don't want you to, to choose stuff that's GPL V3 or GPL V2, um, unless you're really certain that you want us to go do even more due diligence around this. Please pick MIT. Please pick Apache License 2. And here's the things you need to follow. Because um, there's still a lot of uncertainty around what does it mean for your own proprietary uh, source code with regards to copyleft licenses like the GPL v3 and GPL v2. So, uh, I'm kind of not surprised that Apache 2 and MIT are are up there. Um, I'm a little bit biased because I, I kind of like the do whatever the heck you want. Just you know, uh, give back to the community if you want to sort of license, but but that's me. Kind of leave it out to the panel for your own thoughts on this article or or your own thoughts on licenses. Mm. I know Mark covered this in the past. Have I? Well, the difference between MIT and and, um, GNU licenses and stuff like that, right? Yeah. It's all about commercial usage, right? I forget the details now. It's been a while, but MIT essentially lets you sell products that use the open source stuff built into it and uh, GPL is more more restrictive about that, where I think think with GPL, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, with GPL, if, if you include it, you have 
have to you have to make all of your dependent software open source as well, right? Yeah, and I don't remember the differences between the V2 and the V3. Yeah, I think I V3 was right there. Yeah. way more restrictive in terms of what is considered to be um, integration with GPL software, um, and it, it could have been interpreted by by legal folks. And, and there's not a lot of precedence for this. Um, that yeah, if you call these you know these little endpoints or sorry these uh, SDK calls, um, that is intimate knowledge and therefore integration. And so uh, a lot of folks like myself and probably tons of other companies were pretty scared about like, well, just because we use this one really good component in our software doesn't mean we want to give out a license, uh, sorry, the, the source code for all of the proprietary parts. And I think that's why a lot of folks have gravitated towards Apache um, and MIT because they've not had those requirements. Oh, I see. Right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Something definitely to consider. Um, that's just my take on it. I know there's other folks that are a little bit, uh, feel a little bit differently and more passionate about the um, sort of the viral nature of trying to make, you know, all software free and open source. I can certainly mm. um, find that a, a laudable goal. It just philosophically for me, it doesn't fit with my view of what for me, uh, the way I, I like doing stuff is like if I put stuff out there as open source or if I'm working and contributing on something that's open source, I just want it to be out there. I mean, generally trying not to do bad things with it, but I can't think of any right. reasonable license that could uh, could handle such cases. You know, what, what is the definition of good versus bad? It's like, well, uh, there are other avenues to deal with that. And I kind of just like for uh, people to be able to, to stand on the shoulders of giants, as they say. So, not a lawyer, not giving legal advice. Go get this checked yeah. out for realsies. But uh, that's my two cents on this uh, this article. Yeah, no, it's good to get to support. You know, maybe you know something somebody else doesn't. So if you put it out there as open source, then you're helping other people with their problems in coding. The same way, maybe somebody else out there knows something that you don't, and they can improve your software. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Matt Triple T. All right. Um, do we talk about Fluent C plus plus? Do we care? It's not really about C plus plus. So the blog is Fluent C plus uh, plus. Okay. The blog by Jonathan Bokara. But this is really about how we as developers see, and I say in, in sort of scare quotes, see uh, code and what shapes does this code tend to have. So he covers um, something that looks like a saw where a function kind of indents in and out, in and out, in and out. Uh, code that is in chunks like paragraphs or paragraphs with headers. Mm -hmm. uh, one that he's called the suspicious comments. <laughs> Another one of uh, the intensive use of an object and the unbalanced if statement. And he covers some of the, you know, what sorts of things does he tend to see when he sees code with these different shapes and uh, what are the pros and cons and how can things be improved? And I was kind of curious what y'all would think about some of these, like the, um, let's start way down at the bottom, the, the unbalanced if statement. So in this one, he's got an example <laughs> yeah. where it's just, you know, an if statement with like a bazillion lines and then an else statement with one line, right? Or, or, or the opposite way. This is, as he says, a little further down, this is why guard was sort of brought into the languages, right? Yeah. They could do a guard, but I mean, you can do the same thing with, with in Swift, you can stack a bunch of conditions in a, in a guard, right? And then uh, once you pass the guard, you roll on with your, your execution, right? But I mean, I, th I think we've seen all of these styles of coding, right? Oh, for yeah. sure. And I've definitely been uh, a perpetrator of, of many of these. So uh, like intensive mm -hmm. use of an object. So in this one, he's got a graphic where there's a, you know, a bunch of gray lines that represent code. And right. within those lines, a bunch of um, orange little blocks. And that represents sort of what you might imagine if you sort of squinted your code of like, yeah, uh, there's some code here that's sort of, you know, doing operational things, but there's also a whole bunch of this code that's really just about using this one particular object or possibly uh, configuring this one object. And for me, when I see that sort of thing, I say, oh, maybe this could be 
refactored into like um, a setup and configure method. So I get, you know, all the messy details out of the way so that I can just really see the guts of the logic of what I'm trying to do in this function. Mm. Yeah, tutorial websites. The one with suspicious com- comments is sort of like what I see on a tutorial site where, you know, they explain what each line of code does inside a function, right? Right. Which which definitely makes sense in that context, right? Because you're, yeah. you're trying to teach somebody what something is about. Uh, yeah. Sometimes even restating what should be the blindingly obvious, but you want to make sure everybody's covered. Um, mm-hmm. But when I have seen these sorts of, you know, you know every line has a comment within uh, production code, it does sort of get suspicious, like, mm, what's going on here? This really shouldn't be at this level of detail. I should largely be able to tell um, from the name of the function. Uh, it should probably be broken out into separate little also well-named functions, or there's some other sort of, you know, spidey sense that comes up of like, is this really that intricate to have to explain every line? You know, what's what's going on here? Well, they could use that tool you talked about last week. Was it Swift code or something like that? The, the Swift, the the Swift doc, document I think generator? it was. Yeah. Swift doc, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Jazzy. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other one I wanted to talk about was the uh, the saw-like function where things indent in and out. Yeah. I've definitely seen that. It usually goes in concert with uh, very large if-else statements or mm-hmm. very numerous switch statements. Um, and it's definitely one where uh, I've liked to refactor things out so that there aren't quite as many different levels. I mean, how many how many code bases have I looked at in my career where, all right, we need to add this new requirement. Now go look at this thousand line <laughs> mega file that has every possible use case for this UI flow. Painful. There's better ways. And, and this is one of those bit of shapes of code that as you jump into a, a, a new or unfamiliar code base, I think I'm going to start using these tools as like, all right, what, what sort of general shape does this have? And and the little mini map that you see on um, right. on Xcode right. in Xcode 11, I think will be super useful for reviewing code this way. Mm, definitely look into this. Interesting stuff. Cool. In typesetting, there's there's a whole, uh, they call it page color or the color of the page. They talk about like how the, you know, sometimes when you, if you wonder why some, some texts are justified or some are, you know, left aligned um, and how much kerning they use in, in, the, in the spacing, it has to, like there's a thing called page color where you look at sort of how much text is covering the page as opposed to, you know, like if there's a lot of white blobs in it, um, you know, empty space and that kind of stuff, it, it uh, tends to bother typesetters, right? So, yeah. You know, similar um, kind of concept. I, I know it's 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 reaching back into the uh, the mists of time, but if you took a physical newspaper and if I were to go uh, Photoshop out every single word, just make, you know, sentences into lines, and I told you, all right, look at this front page, how many different articles are there? You'd, you'd very easily be able to tell, right? With with not a single word on the page because of the the shape of things and the, right. the regularity mm-hmm. by which things are laid out. Yeah, cool thing. Sort of anyway to look at it. Alrighty. Well, I guess we're at the picks section of the show. Um, so we were joking last week about Mark being the color commentary guy on, on the podcast. And uh, so my first pick is around that idea. And, and um, so I listened to Guy Kawasaki's podcast. He just started up a couple of months ago or a couple of months ago. Yeah. So he's only like six or so episodes in and he's got this podcast called Remarkable People. And this week he was talking to um, Steve Wozniak uh, about, uh, and it was interesting to hear, you know, because we've all heard the different stories about, you know, how wonderful Steve Jobs was and how Apple grew up out of a you know garage and, and so on and so forth. But it was really interesting to hear Steve Wozniak's side of the story about how Apple initially started up, you know, with not just about, you know, Steve Jobs and him, but about, you know, um, Mike Markula and all the sort of different players who were involved and what their core strengths were in terms of bringing, bringing to the, bringing to the, 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 the foundation of Apple and 
And uh, what was interesting is I, I didn't realize, I thought Wozniak had left Apple years and years ago, but he apparently is still an employee at, at Apple. And uh, his thing was he didn't want to quit his job at, at Hewlett Packard because he was, he was an engineer and he enjoyed being an engineer. That's what he wanted to do with his life, even though he was making these amazing things that Steve Jobs and the others were running around selling. Um, he didn't quit his job at uh, HP until somebody said, well, just stay at Apple, but just stay an engineer, right? But he didn't realize he could actually be like a founder, but also an engineer at the same time, rather than having to be, you know, a suit or go to meetings and all that kind of stuff. So that's why he stayed. At, he, that's why he, he quit his job initially. He was making more money selling Apple stuff than HP, but his whole goal in life was to be just an engineer um, at the time. And um, yeah, so and interesting to hear, you know, how, you know, what, who actually took the, the Apple computer to the homebrew and what Steve Jobs' uh, involvement in it was. It's not quite as well as, 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 I mean, Waz's perspective on it is different than how it's written in all the stories we've heard before. So I, I recommend you listen to this podcast. It's about, you know, an hour long, I guess, I think. Uh, but it's really interesting to hear his perspective on on uh, how Apple actually got uh, got up and running. So give it a shot. Oh, this, so this is another quick one here from um, the boys over at objc.io. Uh, they have now got a SwiftUI book. And so they've written this book called Thinking in SwiftUI, which is just coming out. Um, check it out. Uh, you know, they, they've been posting, they've got, they've had a couple of video series. Uh, I think we've talked about them on the show before um, with Chris Idoff and um, I think it's Florin Cougar on the Cougler on the um, on the videos uh, talking about different things with SwiftUI. So they've, this is what they've come up with. And I think we talked. Uh, I think you talked last week. No, I, I, they have some sort of graph viz stuff. Was it graph viz you were talking about? I mean, last week graph, you know, thing for making chart graphs and numbers. Are you uh, still we there? were talking about um, <laughs> graph viz in relation graphs, to Swift yeah, Doc. Okay. I think. Yeah. 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 So he's anyway. So in this this uh, they got you know they're going through. So it's just another perspective on SwiftUI. I think uh, you know. I think a lot of um, the players out there that are normally doing, you know, we've got the stuff from from um, Paul Hudson, and we've got uh, stuff from Apple as well. But uh, but this is sort of the the object CIO people um, talking a bit more about SwiftUI in depth. So as it, as it evolves, you know, this is uh, now available as an ebook. Uh, so check it out. It's my pick, and uh, I have one more. But I'll let Jaime go with his next one because he's scooped me again, <laughs> despite having a three-hour dis- time zone disadvantage. The exciting news coming out of the Apple camp this week was Swift Playgrounds being available for Mac OS, specifically Catalina, if you're curious. And if you're wondering, you say, but I've got a Mac, I can do Playgrounds. Yes, you can, but not the Swift Playgrounds app, which folks might remember was on iPad. But now you too can enjoy mm-hmm. the fun and, and, and learn to code or get people excited about it. And it's very similar from, from what I can tell. I, I did the, the first little intro thing of making the little like alien guy you know move forward and um, grab the gems and it, uh, it is pretty nice to have um, like a full-up keyboard like you sort of expect uh, on a Mac, but yet it also still has the little like uh, autocomplete selection of like, oh, we think you want to move forward or grab gems. That's pretty nice that they, they kept the same spirit in terms of making it easy to sort of select what you want um, without having to, to type in everything. And it plays pretty well. It's pretty nice to to see the, the graphics on a, like I have it on my, my larger screen at the moment. Cool. Yeah, the other nice thing about this too is but the Swift Playgrounds is, and we talked about this a number of times on the show, but there's also, I don't know if you guys remember from the very first, when it first came out, um, you can use Xcode to build these playgrounds that run in this sort of book format with, you know, paging and all that kind of stuff. Um, so if, if you're inclined to, to build something that, you know, could be used in a classroom or uh, at a, a, you know, a, a hackathon or something like that, or one of those, you know, sessions where you're, you're teaching people to code, um, you want to make some exercises, whatever, you could you can make your, custom-made your own, make your own ones 
rather than just having to deal with the stuff that Apple gives you. One of the frustrating things about Swift Playgrounds over the, over the time that I've had it on my iPads is that with each version of Swift, it's been a, it's been a problem because you know you might have a Swift Playground there um, which no longer will work because it was written with a Swift two or Swift three or whatever, right? So hopefully by now we've we've come to a point where we're, we're a bit more stable in our Swift languages, you know, and we can uh, hopefully put all those those dark days behind us. But it is it is cool to see this you know implementation of a catalyst project catalyst app bringing a, a favorite app to the Mac, right? So, but my point in my introduction was about the fact that uh, you can use Xcode to build these playgrounds as well for people to use, right? To, to author your own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think pretty sure Ash Furrow wrote an article on that years, few years ago about how to, how to go about doing that. And what was awkward about it was you could do it in Xcode, but then you had to find a way to transfer it onto, onto the iPad, uh, which was clunky. Hopefully now it's just a matter of going file open or, you know, or, or drag and drop in, in the case of uh, these Swift playgrounds. We'll have to see. Let's play around with it and try it out. But it's cool. I mean, also, you know, um, Xcode's great, but sometimes it's not quite as accessible as, as this playground seems to be, right? Yeah, I think uh, certainly for like children or people who are just getting into and kind of just want to understand the yeah. concepts of coding, um, something as professional and powerful as Xcode can be pretty intimidating. Um, and even sort of the regular playgrounds for, for Mac would probably be leaving people a little out in the cold, so to speak. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I've definitely liked the Swift playgrounds for that fact. Like, I don't think for me where I'm at in my career, am I you know going to go learn how to do Swift with this? No, because I already know uh, Swift as best as I can. Um, but I do think it's it's great to see this extending out for others who who aren't yet at that point in their career. Yeah, and I mean, also, um, it, it's a. I think we talked about this in the past that, that you can actually do um, Swift UI in, in in Swift playgrounds on the iPad. So I'm sure you can do it here on the i on the Mac as well, right? Which is good because then again, you're not dealing with something as as ornery as um, uh, Xcode itself, right? Right. And right. I'm sure it'll support more of the Mac you know, paradigms as well. This this version of Playgrounds. It'd be interesting to see if if the Catal- Project Catalyst stuff is actually an emulator running on Mac OS, or if it is or is actually are these actually Mac app, right? You know what I mean by that? Like, are they are they kind of sandboxed in a sense that way? Like, do you mean does it run like as if it's the simulator for Xcode versus yeah, for I mean, real so like you know we have the stock app and what else do we have? Uh, I think we have Apple Music now on Mac, and um, there's a few other apps that came over with the initial Catalyst stuff, right? Um, and so they're they're kind of like I'm wondering under the hood if they're if they're like kind of in a in a box, you know, like a Docker kind of situation or Kubernetes kind of thing where it just sort of sits in an, an environment protected from protecting itself from the envi- from Mac OS and protecting Mac OS from it, right? Like an emulator or like a like a simulator would, right? We don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I really have no idea. Begs the question. We'll find out. Well, speaking of speaking of Swift UI, my last pick here is just came out today actually, and we're trying to encourage Paul Hudson to carry on with this. I think he's probably got. Well, like I'm looking at it now that he's uh, um, when I saw it earlier today, you know, there was like maybe a thousand like um, this is a post he put on Twitter. Now we're at, at as we record, there's 2.5 uh, like it's had 32,000 views uh, so far and 457 retweet. Um, but he's got this uh, using Sim Control or Sim CTL. It was a great tool that uh, Apple has introduced for letting us you know control our simulators. So he's taken uh, he's written this thing called Control Room, which is a Swift UI Mac OS app that, and he's just got a demo video of it um, showing how you can change the behavior in your simulators. Um, and so I think I think uh, many people are saying yes, please uh, go ahead and build this. You know, post it up on, on GitHub if he he says if other people would, would find it useful. But I think yeah, I think uh, based on the reaction he's gotten so far, all the, the comments and the tweet, um, I think people are people are really excited about this. So we'll see what happens with it. That's my uh, just pointing this 
one out. Control room by Swift Paul Hudson. Check it out on Twitter. I'll have a link in the show notes. Open source under the MIT license. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, what do you mean? Factually, I just looked at it right now. I looked at the link. Oh, is it? Okay. Is yeah, he, yeah. Has he put it up already or no? Yeah. Uh, just under in the conversation thread is the link to uh, Control Room. Right. And looking at the license just to verify is... Uh, oh, he's already he, put it up here. Cool. All right. Yeah. That didn't take long. Nice. Yeah, cool. It's a good loss leader for him too. All righty. Well, I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, hi, me people want to get in touch with you. How would they do that? I'm on Twitter is at Dev with the Hair. And Mark, people want to get in touch with you. Mark R at Smapsoft.com. All right. My name is Timitra, D-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. Until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. We have, oh, we didn't talk about the folding phone today, Harmony. Which one do you mean? There's more than one. Or, yeah, the one that just came out yesterday or today. The Samsung one? The It's like a feature phone style? Is one? that what it was? Didn't Samsung come out with a phone just either today or yesterday? Oh, I'm sure, but I I, I think they had a couple different announcements uh, fairly recently, so I'm, on, I'm unsure which one you're talking about. It's kind of like a mm. clamshell phone. Yeah, okay, so I guess they've got their... their yeah, Cal- Galaxy Z Flip. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. It's a brave new okay. world of, uh, of folding phones. Flip phones. Yeah. <laughs> What's old is new again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little surprised that folks are sort of not seeing the the, the future for that. Um, and I think it's because the current ones are so clunky mm-hmm. that it's hard to sort of project out, well, what could it be like? And I think, I mean, if you were to look at the, you know, the, the first iPhone with, with modern eyes, it'd be like, what is this piece of junk? <laughs> like, look, how, yeah. look how amateurish this looks by comparison to the iPhone 11 Pro, right? Um, but it's hard to have said, oh, yeah, like, I, you could project out pretty easily that this is what a, a future iPhone would look like. Um, so I think if I take that that angle, that lens, and say, all right, what could these flip phones be like? And I think if they end up being much closer to being like, you know, pieces of paper like or, DSs, or right? pieces of cardboard that you, you fold up, put in your pocket, yeah. you use it as a, as a phone, and you're like, well, I want to see a bigger bit of context or a, a larger map or more, you know, video space, and then unfold it out, and you get a, an iPad style of, uh, of space. Space. I mean, it's more like the Casanza wallet to me. Like, shouldn't I be able to origami it and put it on my wrist? Why, why couldn't an Apple Watch go all the way up to an iPad Pro? Hmm. You know, with, with future technology that that needs you know a lot of loving care. Certainly, the, the Samsung Gal- was it Galaxy Fold, the one that they had to to can because it it was breaking apart. Well, why should the why should the watch actually expand out to a physical thing at all? Why can't the watch just project out a larger hologram of the thing yeah. that you're interested in seeing? Exactly. True. True. There's certainly a lot. Of sci-fi that has that sort of it, it reminds me of, yeah there's a movie i watched 
probably back in the 90s at some point. A really terrible movie, and I can't remember what it was, what it was called. But but the premise was that for some reason the heroes had to had to come up with a way of making a really cheap computer uh, that they could sell really fast. And the way they figured out to to reduce the cost of the computer was to not have a monitor. They would have a hologram instead, and it worked. Oh, really? Yeah, that's an oh. interesting premise. It would need to. Somehow for that to make economic sense be like this one material that goes into every possible display is very expensive. Right. And hologram technology would have to be cheap and off the shelf. Yeah. You you pick up grains of sand and and, and you make hologram tech, but this other uh, liquid crystal display and and OLED materials have sunken into the ocean and are very difficult to reclaim. Not to mention all the engineering cuts, designing the hologram and building the hologram projector and all that. I mean, it didn't just MacGyver it? Yeah, that's essentially what they did, yeah. Soft paper clips and bubblegum. Yeah, you know, in my uh, my little story about dealing with Apple support, I forgot one twist that blew my mind, and I I, I must have completely forgotten about it because it was so illogical. So mm-hmm. right before they said, "All right, we're, we're going to give you uh, a coupon code, a redemption code for one year of Apple TV Plus," is it the only thing that's holding this up? Is uh, we definitely need proof of purchase? I'm like, what? You can look it up. <laughs> you can probably see oh, what, what I'm typing right now. Right? Yeah. Um, I was like, well, I mean, I can give you the the order number, you know, that came with the the email that Apple helpfully sends when it's like, hey, you know, you can pick it up in store. And you're like, no, we need the actual receipt with the serial number and stuff. And I thought, all right, and like, yeah, we'll we'll send this this link so you can send files to Apple support, which is gigafiles.apple.com. It's a little upload service. You you sign in with Apple ID and everything, and um, and I gave them a PDF copy of my receipt to prove my proof of purchase right. that they almost certainly can look up in a database right there. It blew my mind that that was a requirement. Well, they're they're obviously not connected systems, right? Not my problem. <laughs> I feel yeah. like a trillion dollar company could solve that. Yeah. Well, they, I'm sure they didn't get to being a trillion dollar company by solving these small problems, right? <laughs> it feels like um, that one Simpsons episode where Bill Gates shows up to buy whatever idea Homer to come up with. And he just yeah. steals everything from Homer and rips up the check. He's like, you think I became a billionaire by writing checks? Yeah. I th- I'm pretty sure those those call support guys are all, they're either working a call center or they're, they're um, working from home, but they're not necessarily tied into apple system right true true that's some inside baseball stuff that i know and you could you could sort of tell when um when they would switch uh route me around to different departments that there was Mm -hmm. probably different um parts of the country yeah or parts of the world for that matter that's true that's true yeah i've talked to i've talked to apple support many times and sometimes i ask where they are i've talked to people in india i've talked to people in texas you know depending on what what issue i was calling that whenever i did server support stuff when i had like apple care on my servers i would end up talking to somebody in the state right with a deep South accent. Certainly not sitting next to, you know, down the hall from Tim Cook, right? No. I mean, he's got a Southern accent too, so. That's true. Maybe but it's Tim. way too expensive to have those people working in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's right. true. You, even the, the Apple Care hours are central time hours when I looked at their website, so. Really? Trying to make sense that they're away from the expensive coasts. And what about people in Europe? Stuff I guess they call a different call center, right? I suppose so. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think we have an Apple Canada call center that's different than yours too. Yeah, this, it's funny how 
hours of eight to five are inconvenient. <laughs> Monday to Friday, eight to five. What? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. What is this? Twenty thirteen should almost. <laughs> they should, uh, you know, for my sort of taste, they should almost be open any other time except nine to five because Why then I'm, I'm I'm prior to work or I've completed work and ready for your attention. It's the same thing. Like you know, you, you got to do a dentist appointment or something. Oh, I have to take some yeah. some time off here or flex. It's like, well, if dentists just worked the weekends instead of not working weekends, it'd be yeah. pretty easy. Yeah. You guys see in the channel about the uh, Mobile World Congress canceled. Canceled. Yeah, That's about, the, about the, uh, the coronavirus. Yeah. And apparently, apparently the uh, we didn't talk about this as well. Um, they are also saying that um, it's going to affect you know things like smartphones and stuff like that, and some some Apple products might suffer because I think they told people at Con- Foxconn not to come to work. Right. They extended out the uh, Lunar New Year holiday by like an extra week. Uh, oh, did they? Maybe more, but yeah. Every every second that people aren't on the on the assembly line is you know however many units that they would produce in a week. That, right. Yeah. That they can't produce, so might be might be interesting. Um, it's really all these things. I think are probably the right move. Right. I mean, you got to stem the tide of these uh, these infections and not let it get worse. I mean, I'd rather yeah. I'd rather have a delayed iPhone. Um, even if I'm sure later on I'll be cursing and screaming like, "Why is my iPhone not available to February's?" Oh, <laughs> dummy. That's right. We, yeah. Because we had this world plague that we had to deal with. Yeah. Did you guys hear about the cruise ships that are all quarantined and stuff? There's yeah, one and one where a bunch of Canadians are stuck on and they're getting they are getting sick and stuff like that. It's not like somebody went off the ship for New Year's and came back with the virus. Yeah. So I'm not sure if we're talking about the same one. Is this one off the coast of Japan? Yeah. 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 All right. So differences in American media versus Canadian media. I had sure. zero idea that there were any Canadians whatsoever on that ship, but I know that there are thirty <laughs> some Americans on the ship. And they're all, are they sick or not? Uh, some handful of them are sick, I think. Yeah, yeah. Same, same yeah. deal here. Yeah, but apparently it's uh, it's gotten bigger than SARS already. Yeah, more people have died. Yeah, and more people have died so far, and it get uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Have you guys checked out the stocks of um, N95 masks? You just look at like Home Depot or Amazon. Oh, I've heard. Uh, yeah, I've heard they're all they're all sold out, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is unusual. Like I can't think of yeah. you know, like, very few things. You know, it'd be like a branded thing normally. Like oh, you know the yeah. the NES classic is sold out on Amazon. Yeah, obviously yeah. it's it's Christmas time and, and people are buying stuff yeah. for their kids. This is the sort of thing that like healthcare professionals need and you would use it for, you know, construction work. Um, that's why it's at Home Depot. Uh, yeah. I don't know what people, what professionals are out there doing. To, they, no, they, they've got they stock because they, they have stock because I went to, uh, I went to visit a family member who was, you know, in an area where it was quarantine happening and uh, had to wear a mask to go in and visit. I kept the mask. <laughs> I just brought it home with me, you know. I so think like, they're... So in case there's a zombie apocalypse, I have, at least I have an N95 mask that can last for eight hours before. Longer than you, right? I think there's limited <laughs> reuse on those. So at least the no, I know. I stuck, it in, I stuck it in a stuck it in a Ziploc bag just to preserve it. So, yes, yeah, so, oh, I know there's, I know the rules of masks. I used to work in a, used to work with pretty toxic chemicals back in the day. Lots right. Of but, but now you made a little terrarium out of, out of the mask, you know, like a little biodome. Yeah. Yeah. And sea monkeys. I don't, <laughs> I don't think she was, yeah, I don't think she was infected, but infectious at the time. So it was a precaution. Yeah. It's funny. I see people all the time around, uh, you know, on transit and stuff like with, with their little paper masks on and they're like, they're just, you know, they're not N95s or whatever. Right. But, um, but they've got them, they got them wrapped around their ears. Funny. So there's a big opening on the ear side of them. I'm like, uh, dude. <laughs> yeah. With those kind of masks, it's like people should wear them, but for the opposite reason, not to prevent yourself, the individual yeah. from getting sick, but from getting other people sick. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does make me think that once this, you know, uh, completes, I'd like to, you know, I still got to put together like a more decent uh, mm-hmm. disaster preparedness bag. And I'm probably going to buy a few boxes of the N95 masks for this reason. Once yeah. They come back in stock and they're not, you know, people Your are raising bag. prices on this stuff because it's such a limited, yeah. limited quantity. Yeah.